I'm pretty sure that's the auditorium. Yes. You, right. So we'll, we'll hear them for about seven minutes or something is, is what I heard. Uh, well, let me start by praying for us. Father God, thank you so much uh, for another day and another evening together. Thank you for Korean pork and coleslaw and uh, fried rice and Hello Dolly bars. And um, just ask now that you will use this time to continue to sharpen our minds and to show us more in your word. And as we always will say, to show us more of you. Thank you for these folks and for their presence here tonight. Use us to mutually encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first thing I want to do is, oh, is there any questions from last week that people had? Like there was something just burning in your mind and you didn't ask and then you didn't email me and now you would love to. Okay, uh, so last week we were focused in on defining the topic of biblical theology and uh, we started by giving the big idea of biblical theology. So I'm just going to do a very quick review. Uh, biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible. Do you, do you all have, does everybody have uh, handouts from week one? Was there someone that's here this week that wasn't here last week? Well, you're out of luck. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we bring copies in case that happens. Uh, so that you can have that handout. Um, so there's, there's two handouts. One is uh, a little bit by Eugene Peterson that we read at the beginning of last week. Uh, so you can read that on your own if you didn't get that. And then the other is an outline for going through the class tonight. Yes. I already had someone ask me and I, and I, I didn't. But I will next week. To someone, see, I gave my pen out. <laughs> Can I borrow someone's writing? Do you have a pen? I know I do. Wow. <laughs> the more I'm around you, the more I like you. Okay, bring. All right, I will bring copies of that next week. And then I'm just going to put that pen right here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. So biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in the person and work of Jesus so that every part of the story is understood in relation to Jesus. And we, we made our way through Luke 24 last week to see how Jesus himself did that set the course and the precedent for us is understanding the Bible that way, that it is a story that leads to him. We saw information from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 about that. We talked about the idea that biblical theology, in the words of Don Carson, seeks to uncover and articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together and then resorting primarily to the categories of those texts themselves. So that's just a way of saying we want the text to define the themes that we're looking for in the Bible and that we want to follow all the way through, like the theme of sacrifice or the theme of kingdom um, or the, thing of, the theme of king. Um, 
We heard from Michael Lawrence in his book on biblical theology that it is the attempt to tell the whole story of the whole Bible as Christian scripture. So it's Christian scripture. Um, that this is uh, the identity work of Christ or the crucial piece of the story around which everything else revolves in the story. The idea of biblical theology is that no matter where a text is located on the plot line of right the whole plot and the whole story, it should always be preached, taught, studied, understood in relationship to that entire plot line being in view. Okay, that's so I'm just giving you some of these um, bullet points that we hit. Um, and then we made our way to uh, a, that big point number two. What is the Bible and what about it makes biblical theology necessary? So we talked about God's word being written by humans by quoting Peter's text and that it was also written by God, that before it was a human word, it was a God word. And because it is God's word mediated through humans, there therefore is a unity in the story. That's why we can see the beautiful unity in the big story that we do. Um, we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. So that gets us up to the end of where we ended last week. And so part C, so we heard that um, God's word was written by humans, it was written by God, and God has revealed himself progressively. So Islam understands that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad all at once, miraculously lower down from heaven is the teaching. The sacred texts of Buddhism and Confucianism are confined to the lifetime of a single man, but God progressively revealed more and more of himself and his story over time. We, we mentioned this even last week, I think, that scripture was written over two millennia, and its contents are not like pearls on a string, discreet and unrelated. Rather, each act of revelation follows on from what came before and prepares us for what is coming next. He just kept unfolding and unfolding the story. That's why it's one united story. Uh, we also see that God revealed himself in history. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are objective events in history that not only reveal information about God and redemption, they did something. They accomplished something. They actually changed the world, right? It was, it was this cataclysmic reverberating effect that changed the world when God came to the earth that he created as man. And those acts of God and redemption accomplished redemption. The Bible, therefore, is not merely a story told by humans about God's salvation of them. It is a drama enacted and then explained by God about God. It's like show and tell in history. It's one of the really helpful ways that I can remember all the way back. This is probably first year in seminary and having a, a conversation with my classmates. I was in this cohort and there was eight of us. And so for three years, the eight of us uh, were all together. Interestingly enough, three of the eight were named Chris. Can you believe that? I mean, what are the odds? So it was, it was uh, Lent, Davis, and Bruno is what they became known for three years. Um, but we were trying to like, get our heads around. Um, there, there's all these really interesting passages in the Bible, like God changed his mind, or God feels. Um, God does this and then that. Like, how, how do you make sense of those kinds of things in the biblical story? And 
And so the metaphor that started to kind of make sense for me of the scriptures was, was the idea of like, like just think of a, a story or, or maybe even a movie. Like think of a movie, right? So there's, what do you have to have to have a movie? You have to have a, a, a screenwriter, an author, the one who um, creates the work. And then you need a director, right? The one who's going to bring that work to life and into being. And then you need, what do you need finally? You need actors that, that play out the story, the characters in the story. And so God plays the role of all three of those in time, space, history, right? He is, he is the author. So he's above time and outside of time. He's, he's created before the world began, Paul tells us. He's written the entire, he wrote the story, every bit of it, from the massive universe we see to the smallest speck of dust that's going through a sunbeam. He wrote that entire story. And then he is the director that he's, he's speaking everything into reality by the word of his power. So he's directing all the events that he had previously written and decided would happen. And then there are times when he's the actor in this, when he steps into and plays a role within the story to actually act out those events that he had written and is now directed. And that's just a really helpful way for me to think about, like, how do these things work in the story that he is telling? Does that make sense? Thus, in biblical theology, you know, we're, we're talking about that he revealed himself in history, that it's about redemption, that he's accomplishing redemption. And so theologians speak of redemptive history, that all of history really is defined by this redeeming work of God in Jesus. It's not opposed to real history, but rather a history that is selective and focused on the unique events that make up the narrative of God's redemption of his people. So think about it like that's like this thread that it's, it's affecting all other parts of history and that the rest of history relates to and flows from, I think is a way to think about that. Okay, God's revelation has an organic character. It doesn't simply proceed like a construction site, which moves progressively from blueprint to finished building. So kind of attach this piece to that piece and then that piece. And Kyle doesn't want to hear about construction anyway tonight. Rather, it unfolds and develops from seed form to like a full-grown tree. It's organic in nature. So it starts small and then grows. So let me give you an example of what that looks like. The idea of sacrifice. So in the very beginning of this story, it's just a burnt sacrifice whose aroma pleases the Lord with Noah. Then it's a substitutionary sacrifice in the story of Abraham. Then that theme is picked up on, and we see all of the substitutionary sacrifices that cause, we talked about this this last week, right? On Sunday morning, that cause an angel of death to pass over all of the children of Israel with Moses. Then it's the substitutionary sacrifices that are offered by priests that bring atonement in the Levitical law, the blood of lambs cleansing away all sin. Then it is the substitutionary sacrifice of the great high priest, Jesus himself, not continuing to offer sacrifices for our sins, but becoming himself the Lamb of God. Do you remember who declared that over him in the story? That he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? John the baptizer, right? Who by laying down his own life and shedding his own blood would take away the sins of the world. So you see, it, it starts as this little seed and grows and grows and grows, God revealing himself in a rich, multi-layered 
way. God reveals himself, so just continuing to see how he reveals himself, in narrative. The Bible as a whole is best understood as a single story, like we've been saying. So like a story about a king, a kingdom, and his relationship with his subjects. It's a story that encompasses us, us today. And, you know, to think about the Bible, I, I always thought, well, there's like these different genres in the Bible, which is true. There's different forms in the Bible, which is true. And, you know, we want to think, well, there's kind of some narrative and then there's these other pieces of the Bible. Really, all of the Bible is a story. All of the Bible is narrative. Even when you get to the, what we call the epistles or the letters in the New Testament that Paul had been writing to the churches, right? Those are letters that are situated in relationship. You have to know someone who knows another someone and has shared a common experience and you're writing a letter to them and talking to them about your lives. That's what Paul is doing. And understanding that story that surrounds even these exhortations and commands and imperatives is absolutely required in order to know how to interpret and apply those things to your life. So really all of the Bible is story and is narrative, and I think it's really helpful to think about it that way. God reveals himself in news. So it is a story, but it presents us with news. It presents us with a message like the newspaper stories or news stories we see on TV every day. The Bible doesn't present us primarily with information that we must incorporate in order to change our lives and be better versions of ourselves. Rather, it presents us with a message about God, who he is, what he has done, and calls for us to quite simply believe. This is going to be so important on Sunday. Please come on Sunday to hear uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 27, all the way to chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul is going to argue so strongly that it is what we believe about God and who we are in relationship to God that is absolutely important and changes our lives. So much of the Bible. I grew up in the church thinking of it as a textbook or a reference manual, right? And I'm coming to church on a Sunday morning to listen to sermons so I can get the bit of information that I'm supposed to write down and apply to my life. When so often what I'm, what I'm trying to do, what I'm hoping to do, and what God does on Sunday mornings is to simply display before you things about who God is that you're just supposed to rest in and believe. And doesn't that sound far more refreshing anyway? So thank you, Jesus, for working it out that way. He's just wanting to present who he is. He reveals himself. It's a message about what has been done, not primarily what you have to do, although there are things that you have to do. Okay? So it's a balance. Christian life is filled with tensions. Most importantly, God reveals himself, and I just want to keep saying it over and over again because my life depends on it. God reveals himself in Jesus. The climax of the story in this story before, I would say it before, now when I'm looking at this, what I was going to say is that it's God's redemptive acts in the person and work of Jesus that's the center point in the gravity of the story, which is mostly true. But when we get to Revelation, it's kind of the the center point and the gravity and the climax of the story thus far. You say it that way. When the story is wrapped up, as we see at the end in, in Revelation and how all of that's going to come to a conclusion, it is certainly still ultimately about this king who will come back, right, in a white robe, on a white horse, 
all of us meeting him in the air who are still down here and all of the hordes of the armies of God and those who have already gone before coming down to bring down a, a new heavens and to institute a new earth and to consummate what he began. He's got a tattoo on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, a sword coming from his mouth. <laughs> Just like, yes! The most ultimate brave heart scene you've ever seen in your life or ever will see in your life. That will be the climax to begin the rest of the story. So, any questions about all of those aspects in which God reveals himself in the story? Okay, um, before we go on to week number two, um, I, I want to give you a comparison of, has anybody ever heard of systematic theology? Hands up high if you've heard of systematic theology. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> okay, great. Well, this will be helpful then. Um, now, uh, when I say the phrase biblical theology, probably you didn't come here. Most people don't think of biblical theology as the discipline of reading the Bible as one story which centers on Christ. A lot of times you say biblical theology, they're thinking, okay, so you're going to talk about theology that comes from the Bible. You talk about facts and doctrines and things like that that come from the Bible, which you're learning that's not biblical theology. That's actually what we typically refer to as systematic theology. So systematic theology is that kind of theology that systematizes all of the truths that we find in the Bible. And so I want you to understand the difference so that you can know what each is. So you'll know better what biblical theology is by knowing what it's not because you'll know what systematic theology is. Does that make sense? So what is systematic theology? It is an orderly and comprehensive summary of the Bible's teaching by topic. So systematic theology isn't so much concerned with the storyline of the Bible as much as it's concerned with the bottom line of the Bible. What does the Bible say about God, for instance, or salvation, heaven and hell, sexuality or politics? It's often what I, I think people kind of a big itch for you is like you want to know answers to those questions or those topics. And so then you go kind of rooting around in the Bible to try and find the text that will tell you that. That's what a systematic theology is for. It also seeks to formulate those summaries into precise and accurate doctrines, which then define the boundary between truth and error, between orthodoxy, which is right belief, and heresy. So it seeks to make kind of strong normative statements that we can believe in as Christians. Finally, systematic theology not only summarizes, but it organizes and defines and then seeks to apply those truths to our lives today. So it's like I told you, uh, I think I told you last week, um, how John Frame talks about all theology in order to be theology is practical in nature. It, it has to make a difference in your life. This is an ivory tower you know, esoteric, kind of vague intellectual pursuits. These are, I want to know truths and I want to exercise the muscle of my mind to apply it to everyday life. And so systematic theology is trying to give you those very specific doctrines so that you understand how those things apply to your life. I've got a little chart in your handout to kind of understand some of the differences between biblical theology and systematic theology. So both see scripture as the authority to which they are appealing in the world. Um, the organizing principle for biblical theology is that it's historical. 
It traces the development of revelation through time and through a story from beginning to end. Systematic theology, the organizing principle is topical, logical, hierarchical. How do things relate to one another? Biblical theology has as a starting point the Bible on its own terms. And systematic theology has a starting point of contemporary questions. So where are you at? And you're trying to discover something and you're coming to the Bible to help you answer those questions. Biblical theology provides a storyline, so kind of like a news story, while systematic theology provides doctrine, worldview, and application, kind of the headline. Biblical theology in this way is kind of a bridge to systematics, whereas systematic theology summarizes biblical theology. So think of it this way. It's like if you're going through a big story, say, say you're reading through a novel that's presenting you with with aspects of a culture or a world or a city that you've never heard of before. And these little facts and kind of thoughts kind of are like milestones throughout the story, right? And then maybe you're going to go back and try and figure out more about each of those particular things so you can understand the story better. That's how the Bible works as well. So you have this biblical theology is this like big, huge story arc of the Bible. And as we go along the way, we hear words like redemption, or sacrifice, or um, propitiation, or predestination, or salvation, or sin, or transgression. And, and now, systematic theology says, okay, those are like hooks in the story, and now I want to go through the rest of the Bible, and I want to find a bunch of information out, and I'm going to put about salvation, say, I'm going to go through all through the Bible, just grabbing texts that talk about salvation. I'm going to pile them all up, I'm going to put them on this hook called salvation. So I understand salvation within the context of the overall story. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Let, let me give you um, a, way about, a way that these two things would speak about the same thing differently. Okay, so uh, let's, let's talk about um, the good news. How would I state the good news from a biblical theological framework, and how would I state it from a systematic framework? In a biblical theological framework, and, and those who were in the class last semester, it is creation, fall, redemption or rescue, and restoration or new creation. Okay, so that's, that's the entire story of the Bible in four words. Or someone who is in sentence that we learned that's only six words long can kill the dragon get the girl right that's the entire story of the bible adam screwed up he didn't kill the dragon that was after his girl and the second adam romans chapter five we're going to get to it soon comes along and what's his what's his whole goal to kill the dragon and get his bride Right? That's, a, that's a biblical theological way to talk, about this, to talk about the good news. Creation, fall, rescue or redemption, and restoration or new creation. Systematic theology, we talk about it in terms of God, man, Jesus, and my response. Kind of a doctrinal approach there in flavor that you can here and that that's how the entire story of the Bible can get put in those kind of doctrinal categories. So that's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. So any questions on that?
and just all taking it in. All right, week two. You all should have had a handout. Um, and something I want to draw your attention to on this handout is just so you, I just want to remind you so you have a sense of the flow and where we're going. Um, so in these first three weeks, however long it takes me to get through each week of manuscript and teaching, um, we're, again, we're just really trying to get at what is biblical theology. Um, so that's defining the topic tonight, guardian and guide for the church, and then defining the tools. And then the stories to be told, so that's biblical theology displayed. And so you're gonna, we're going to go through six different themes, as you'll recall we talked about last week. Uh, and that's where I think, so the reason I'm telling this and pointing this out to you is hang with me for three weeks. Because maybe you're like, well, why are we going through all this? This isn't as exciting as I was hoping it was going to be. I feel like I'm not maybe learning exactly what I want to but we need the framework so you understand that. And then we're going to start exploring the themes where it gets really, I think is where it really, I mean, I, I think all of it is fun, but it gets really fun because we're going we're gonna to step into one of, one of my favorite metaphors is, um, you ever seen one of those, uh, what do they call the things where the, the planets and the stars are on the ceiling when you walk in the planetarium? You've been to a planetarium or at least you know what one is. Like, I love going to a planetarium and being immersed in, like, a universe, and then they can switch stuff around and, you know, fling you out into space farther, right? Like, that's what, that's a picture I often have in my mind when I walk into the pages of Scripture. It's like this planetarium, and there's this whole story that's going on around, and I want to situate myself and understand where I'm in the story and what covenant I'm operating in and how is God relating to his people right now. And, and, and that's what these themes are like. Now I start to like, here's the theme of sacrifice, and I start to see kind of just like this big panoramic screen as it's scrolling across in front of me. So that's where it's going to get really fun, but we need some of those tools. And then... In weeks 10 through 13 is where you're going to start working really hard. We're going to actually probably break. I hope this doesn't scare you away. We're, we're going we're gonna to break up into some group. It'll be kind of like, did you ever go to college and you had like the class and then you had the lab? Week, weeks 10 through 13 are like the lab, like where we start to apply the things that we've learned. Because I don't want you to just sit there. For all of these weeks, I want you to be able to start digging in and rolling up your sleeves so that you're going to be able to take these things with you and apply them, hopefully, the rest of your lives. So um, hang with me the first few weeks while we, while we build a framework here. So tonight I want you to see um, the first part of what we've talked about is really what is biblical theology, and this is kind of why biblical theology. Why, why is it even important? Why are we talking about this? Why are you here tonight? And I want to argue two things that it is the guardian and the guide for the church. And so I want to begin with a short story, actually a little bit of a short story. I'm not going to give you the whole story. Uh, if you want to, you can, you can Google. Um, I think I've got it in. Oh, that's session one. I need a handout myself. Um, oh, I didn't put the title. I just put the author. So this is from a, an article called A Gospel in, you know, good news, a false good news in kind of scare quotes that almost killed me. And um, this is a personal testimony from Sean DeMars, who's 
who's now a, a pastor in an inner city church. It's about his experience with false teaching. I'm in a bathtub. I can't get up. I feel like I'm about to die. I have mercury poisoning. The water in the tub has grown cold. I'm floating in and out of consciousness. Whenever I can concentrate, I begin to pray. Jesus, please save me. Please heal me. I repent. I, I put my whole heart into prayer right now and I cast out any doubt or fear. I know you can heal me. Please heal me. I hear my mom's keys rattling the doorknob now and I hear the door thud shut in the distance. I hear a purse sliding across the counter and her keys landing next to it. I barely recognize her figure as she tries with all of her wiry might to pull me out of the tub. I spend the next two days in the hospital. My mom wants to know why I didn't let her know, why I didn't want to go to the hospital, why I didn't do something. Mom, Jesus is my doctor. I'm blessed, and I know that he would have healed me. This is me trying to live out what I think is true Christianity. I had just gotten saved two months prior. I'm fresh out of jail, and I'm walking around the projects where I used to stomp like a tiny teenage giant. I've got a bare back a lot of tattoos and a Bible in my hand. I'm just praying for the opportunity to share the Christ with someone. I meet a man named Roger who invites me into his home. He buys me lunch and we spend all day talking about the Bible. This guy knows way more than me. I've never heard anyone spout off so many scriptures in such rapid fire succession. This guy is legit, I say under my breath. Over the course of the next six months, this man indoctrinates me with what is called the prosperity gospel. Just a few months earlier, I'd never even opened a Bible. I have no idea that I'm being given arsenic in my Kool-Aid. I take it all. I believe it all. I know it's true. It has to be. It's all right there in Scripture. Look, she touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Look, Jesus couldn't heal them because they didn't have enough faith. Look, all throughout the Old Testament, you see curses for sins and blessings for righteousness, prosperity for the good, pain for the bad. It's so plain. It's just so obvious. But stuff isn't making sense. I'm still without a job. I can't pay my rent. My mom isn't getting saved. And I keep getting cold sores. None of these things should be happening. There must be sin hidden somewhere in my heart. Now I have the flu. I don't have any money to buy groceries. I just need to claim it. I just need to rebuke Satan and his lies and believe that what I have proclaimed in the name of Jesus will surely come to pass. Maybe I'm not tidy enough. Time to double up. I'll get it back 100-fold, maybe more. I just need to sow in faith. But it's still not happening. Roger, hey man, I, I don't understand. It seems like this stuff isn't working. What am I doing wrong? Dude, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know the problem ain't with God or his word. It's got to be something in your heart or in your life. Let's pray about it. The prosperity gospel, this is still Sean, and word of faith movement are basically the same thing, but I've never heard anything about any of those things before. All of the good Bible-loving Baptists around me are afraid of me because I probably robbed their sons, stole their cars, or vandalized their church. Yet because of my powerful testimony, scores of churches invite me to come and share. I preach a false good news every time I go. Not once does anyone ever sit me down and talk with me about the danger that my soul is in. Not a word. Not a peep. Not to my face, anyway. I now know that they waited respectfully until I left and then talked among themselves about how sad it is to see such passion so misdirected. And he goes on to tell in his story 
how he was exposed to preachers who proclaimed the true story of the good news. He starts to find videos online, watching on YouTube, and he finds God's full story that's found in the Bible, not just bits picked out here and there. And then he goes on to encourage others to do the same. Here's what he says. Here's the bottom line. I was a heretic, but Christ had saved me from my sin and he saved me from my heresy too. When it comes to embracing the false teaching found in what's known as the prosperity gospel, I doubt that you would have found anyone more dedicated or ruthless than me. I was the chosen one, but I was ensnared in false teaching. And so is everyone else who is trusting in this. And he quotes, he'd watched a video from John Piper that did a little, there was this, what is it called when you put the video, auto-tune? Someone had auto-tuned Piper about the prosperity gospel, and he called it crap good news. And that really stuck, kind of slammed this guy. And he said, I, I was trusting this crap called good news. Brothers and sisters, call it what it is. Pastors, he encourages, call it what it is. Don't let even a hint of this junk live in your church. Preach against it. Preach against a kind of good news that shines so bright and burns so hot that any other good news that tries to approach it burns up upon entry. Don't treat this like an asymptomatic sniffle in an otherwise health, healthy body. Treat this you know, false teaching like the cancer that it is. Preach, teach, counsel, shepherd, pray a clear and true good news and leave no room for anything less glorious or true. And if you meet someone like this and trapped by this, sit them down and tell them the truth, he says. And I think what this story does is provide a very graphic picture of how dangerous wrongly using our Bibles can be. This friend of his named Roger, right, may have met well, maybe not. The fact is he likely did not have a full understanding of the story of redemption in the scripture and the fullness of God's dealings with his people. He didn't have a theology of affliction, of suffering, of poverty, of sickness, all those hard bits that they were there in the story that he was leaving behind. Well, he cherry-picked all the other bits in the story that he really liked. It appears he didn't know how to read his Bible rightly, and so he led Sean astray by teaching him the Bible. Which is why biblical theology is so important. So remember what it is. It's how to read the Bible as one story by one divine author that centers on the person and work of Jesus so that every part is understood in relation to Jesus. It's a way to read the Bible, which means that biblical theology is a hermeneutic. Has anybody heard hermeneutic before? <laughs> it's kind of a $4 word, right? But hermeneutic just means the theory and the methodology of interpretation. It's just, it's just a fancy way of saying how to do something, and it's how to study a text, and really any text, there's hermeneutics in all different kinds of texts in ancient literature, and we need to have a hermeneutic, a method, and a methodology for studying the ancient text known as the Bible. I mean, we see this. English students have hermeneutics for studying Hemingway and Austin. Supreme Court justices, right, have a hermeneutic. What are they supposed to do? There's a way that they're supposed to understand and interpret what? The Constitution. And we know that on our current Supreme Court, there's textualists, and there's non-textualists, those who want to take the text for exactly what it says and those who want to import a bunch of meaning into it. And same kind of thinking in the biblical world. 
We have eisegesis, eis, Greek, into, to bringing meaning into the Bible, and we have exegesis, ek, out of, from. We want to draw meaning out from the Bible. So as Christians, this is massively important. Having a hermeneutic, having a methodology of studying the Bible is massively important because it is the most important document that exists in the world today. It's the way that we understand and interpret and apply this text is a really big deal, right? Because it tells us how we live and how we die and how we'll live after we die. So thank you for taking time to care about it and for being here. Because in caring about it for yourself, you're also caring about it for the next generation. Because hopefully you'll be like Paul said to Timothy, now these things that you have learned, go and pass along to faithful men what you know. So what I'd like to do in just a moment is show you, uh, I want to tonight show you how this, how this hermeneutic, this way of re reading the Bible, biblical theology, is really important as a means of guarding us as a church from error, because that's one of my responsibilities as one of your elders, is to, is to guard you from error. And it's actually one of your responsibilities too, to guard yourself and to guard each other from error, like Sean experienced, that almost led to his death. And I want to show you how biblical theology is important for guiding the church into right living and flourishing, which is also one of my responsibilities as one of your elders, and it's also one of your responsibilities. How to guard yourself from error and how to guide yourself in right living and to a life of flourishing. Do you, do you want to live a life of flourishing? Of course you do. Before I do that, I want to do a little review. The entire semester, last semester, I want to review in one page. So if, if you weren't a part of it, I'm going to try and give you a piece of last semester. And if you were a part of it, this will be review for you. Um, because I need you to have some categories for kind of how to study the Bible that I think fit inside of and kind of run alongside of biblical theology as a way of studying the Bible. Think of it this way. Biblical theology is an answer to the question, how do I study my Bible by making sure you understand it as one story? And the inductive Bible study method is also an answer to the question, how do I study the Bible? By making sure you have some basic tools to understand the story, how to dig into the story, interpret it, and apply it. So the thing we learned, so someone from, from last semester, I'm going to call on you. What's the first and most important thing that we do in Bible study? We pray, right? So please, every time you sit down to read the Bible, the first thing that you should do, and the most important thing that you will do, is pray. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words, or write them, given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. So that's why it is that when, if you're talking with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, and you're explaining something, you're like, this seems so clear, 
and they can't understand it, it's because it's not that there aren't things in the Bible that someone without the Spirit of God operating on them can't understand. They can't understand. There are many things that, that they can understand in the Bible that are obvious to them in the writings of the Scriptures, but there are so many things that aren't that they need the Spirit to be able to understand. It's why I love... And you remember at the very beginning of, of, um, of the story of the Bible, it talks about that the Spirit of God in creation and the creation event was hovering over the face of the waters, like right there over the creative event. And then isn't it remarkable that when we, when we hear about the interpretate or the, uh, the writing of the scriptures, that they are all spirit, they're God breathed, they're from the spirit. So what, what is happening as those words are being written, the spirit is hovering over the face of the words. And so I often, when I open my Bible in the morning with my cup of coffee and my egg, which is what I have every single morning, you know, one less decision I have to make. I sit and, and I picture, and I'm, I, I'm doing what Paul is saying. Okay, Spirit, you're here now. You inspired these words. You reside in me because I'm in Jesus. And so I, usually I, I just want to get really close because he's like right there and I just like osmosis. I just want to get in with the Spirit and in the Word and I'll open my eyes to see. Because what does the Spirit take great delight in? Illuminating Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Like this, this hologram that comes up. Like, you know, uh, Princess Leia in Star Wars when they turned. I thought I'd give you another Star Wars reference tonight. Right? Like, he, he's just there. I just want to see him. And the Spirit is, is the person of God. The person, not an it. He. He reveals those things to us. He was active in the inspiration of the Bible. And he'll open our minds to see. So, first step is pray. After that... Inductive study, and it's there in your handout, can be broken out into three distinct phases. Observation, interpretation, and application. Okay, so that's really important, and the order is really important. Observation, I'm looking in there, I'm asking tons of questions of the test. I mean, again, the most effective tool you have in Bible study is to ask questions of the text. Question after question after question after question. That's what I do when I prepare a sermon. I just ask tons of questions and then try and find the answers. So make observations always with context as king. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay, when, when we rip texts out of their context, the overall line of reasoning and story, we're just trying to take that and prove something that we want to prove versus what the author wanted to prove, which is why it's embedded in all of that context. It's why I don't like Christian coffee cups with little verses on them because they miss all of it. I'm sorry. I know. I just ruined a bunch of people. I've said that before, and then I got an email, so I'm supposed to, with a picture of a mug, so I'm supposed to throw this away. I was like, wow. Yes, actually. Yeah, throw that away. Well, you're going to ask a question. I'm going to give an answer. Observation with context as king, and then interpretation. So now I'm, I'm trying to, to say, so observation is what does the text say? Interpretation is what does it mean? So don't mix interpretation and application up. Don't go from observation to what does this mean for me? That's not your primary concern. 
and when we sit around in a circle and like we call it so things that we call a Bible study sometimes, and then, you know, we've all read a portion of scripture and then, and then the leader says something like, and, and I may step on toes here, but they say something. So what did the text mean to you? No, 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 no. Don't ask that question. Save that question till the end or maybe next week after you've asked, what does Paul mean? by this text? Or what does Moses mean by this text? Because what we're on the hunt for in observation is what is that one intended meaning, right? What did the author mean? My goodness, I even remember this in non-biblical studies when I was at Carlson School of Management and taking a humanities course and and we were reading, um, I think it was a Hemingway novel, and the teacher's up there, and, and like, you know, the cat on the dresser is a sign of, you know, uh, white imperialism, and, the, the, and I was like, what? I think it's just a cat. I don't think he meant that at all. I think he was just describing there was a cat on the dresser that she saw. Don't import meaning. Now, if you want to start doing all kinds of applications, after that, okay, I guess fair enough. But that's what it means to you. It's not what he meant. It's not what Paul meant. So we're on the hunt for what does the author mean? What does the text mean? Then we can ask, after those two hard pieces of work, what does the text mean for me? So the phases are progressive and that you always begin with observation, move to interpretation, and only then can you move on to application. So that's just some basic tools for approaching this ancient text called the Bible. I'm not going to give you an entire semester's worth of study on how to do those three things, but hopefully that'll be helpful to you as just a way to, to do your Bible study. And now that we have those clear, we can move another step forward in our learning biblical theology, seeing how it guards the church from error and guides the church into right living and flourishing, because I think that inductive Bible study and biblical theology are kind of like a one-two punch in hermeneutics when I come to the story. Because first what I want to do, like biblical theology holds me to, it's this story. And then when I, so I want to read it through maybe once. And then when I come back and I read the story again, now, now there's going to be little speed bumps in that story for me, right? And then I'm going to stop and go, okay, I, what's going on in that bit right there? Why did it happen that way? Now I can take my tools of, okay, I want to observe. I'm going to ask lots of questions. Maybe I'm going to read a commentary because I don't know what it was like in the first century. I don't know what it was like to live there. Like, I don't know what that word means. And that word probably means something different in the first century than it means in the 21st century. So I should probably try and figure that out. So I'm going to ask all those questions and then I'm going to try and interpret it. Maybe I make some application to my life. Now I've understood that bit but not outside of the story. See, does that make sense? Like I can, under, I can take inductive Bible study to grab hold of these bits, but always letting the story rule and hold it together and not pulling it out of the flow of that overall story. So see how it's kind of like this one-two punch that we have in our arsenal. So first, biblical theology to guard the church. So let, let's, let's look at some texts together and consider... Consider them and then how we might go wrong in them. So listen to these first passages regarding the idea of blessing. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 6. Now, if you faithfully obey Yahweh your God and are careful to follow all his commands that I am giving you today, 
Yahweh your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All of these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey Yahweh your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One person gives freely, it gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. All right. If you have a hermeneutic of observation and interpretation and application, and of reading the Bible as one story by one author, one divine author, how would those two methods and ways of reading the Bible potentially guard us from error in these passages? That, I mean, that's, that's the question. That's the rub. That's why you're here. How will these tools help me? Because we pull these out, right, because of the story that hopefully you're making. The, let me make the connection for you, the story at the beginning, right? I do these things and I'm going to be blessed. That's going to be my life. I'm going to live a blessed life. There seems like m kind of magical, wonderful equations here in the Bible for me. Maybe you've seen TV evangelists or TV preachers or heads of TV ministries in particular use verses like these to say that you should give generously to the teacher. If you give to me so that I can buy the nicer car or the jet or multiple jets, you will be blessed. God will reward you. If you're obedient, you will be blessed. Your business will grow. You'll be healthy. Your children will prosper. Your marriage will thrive. Sow a seed of faith, right? We've probably, many of us, heard that. So how would you respond to that kind of thinking and interpretation by leaning on the whole story of the Bible? For example, if I look at the whole story of the Bible, it's not just these bits in Deuteronomy and, and Proverbs, but it's the book of Job. Have you read the book of Job? The story of Job. What about Exodus? 430 years, multiple generations of slavery to Egypt by people who weren't perfect, but were seeking to follow God before, right? There was a, a time of prosperity and fruitfulness, and then the pharaohs just turned on them. Or how about the murder of Jesus himself, who perfectly kept the law? How would you explain those things? Let's hold on to that for a moment. Let's try a few more in relationship to asking God for something. A few more texts. First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10. Jabez called out to the God of Israel, if only you would bless me, extend my border, let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will not experience pain. And God granted his request. Matthew 18, 19. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21, 22. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. 
So again, how do I have a hermeneutic of observation, interpretation, application? Biblical theology, understanding the whole story of the Bible to make proper sense of these verses. Because with our connection back to our story of, story of Sean Mars, right? These are some of the favorite verses of prosperity preachers, which lead to a name it and claim it kind of philosophy, which I think almost views God in heaven like, like a butler. And we're kind of sitting on our little chaise lounge, hitting the intercom. That's prayer. And we're like, um, God, could you bring me a nice job? Uh, God, I, would, I, I think a nice car would be good. Um, how about a raise? Nice wife or whatever it is that we're at. And, and some would say, well, just, just name that. And he's going to bless you with health and wealth if you just ask with enough faith right? If you had enough faith, then he would do it. Many of you may know that 1 Chronicles 4.10 was the basis for Bruce Wilkinson's book published in 2000, the year 2000, called The Prayer of Jabez. Anybody remember that book that sold 9 million copies? <laughs> and we wonder why it sold 9 million copies. Because everybody wanted to be Jabez. God, grant me the land. Extend my borders. Give it to me. And if we're being honest, how many of us in this room have read Jesus' words? Again, I tell you, two or three agree on earth about a matter you pray for. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for. How many have thought, if I just ask hard enough, if I believe enough, if I do X, Y, or Z, then he'll fill in the blank. Or you've thought, there's something that's in the way. Like, if I could just stop doing this and then I ask this, then my life would be okay. And he'd give me what I want. But we have to ask the question, what are these verses truly about? How would you respond to interpretations like that, like we've talked about? How would a hermeneutic of reading the Bible as a story with the tools of observation Interpretation and application work within that story to guard you from errors in interpreting these texts. In particular, how would you understand the experience of not receiving something you asked for in prayer in light of these scriptures? What would you do in the face of that? I'm asking, how would you make sense? Or if someone came to you and said, I keep asking for this thing that seems really good. I want my mom to know Jesus, and she doesn't. Why isn't he answering that prayer? Why isn't he doing that? Let me give you another example. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. How would understanding the whole story, biblical theology, help me properly interpret this verse? Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to say that Jesus is not God, that he did not exist in eternity past rather he is the first and greatest of god's creations who then created everything else if you continue reading colossians 1 16 and following that first jesus was created and then jesus became the means by which everything else was created so how how if the jehovah's witness came to your door and knocked on your door and wanted to talk to you about jesus and explain that 
that version of Jesus to you, what would you say in response? How would you observe, interpret, and apply inside the story of the scriptures to a Jehovah's Witness exactly what that one sentence means? To be in line with what you believe about Jesus, that he is the Son of God and that he wasn't created. He's not a created being. And they would say, but it says he's the firstborn. He, but he is created. It says it right there. How would you answer? It's only in the wider context of the story that we're going to be able to answer questions like these. We, we could keep going on with example after example of texts and kind of topics. But my point is, imbalanced or fa false gospels and imbalanced or false doctrines and beliefs and churches that get formed around them are built either on proof texts that pay no attention to the whole storyline of scripture or on whole stories that go awry. Either they wrongly connect the Bible's major covenants or they have too much continuity or too much discontinuity between the First Testament and the Second Testament. Maybe they promise heaven on earth now or they disembody the spiritual life now. Maybe they take just Bible verses and kind of twist them to give people what they want. The stories that some of these movements or churches or teachers tell may not be all wrong, right? Which actually makes them more dangerous because they have a bit of truth in them, a bit of the story. But then they omit details and redistribute emphases and make tenuous interpretive connections to construct actually a counter-biblical narrative, a different story. And the only way that we're going to be able to counter their story is by knowing the true story. In each case, bad or imbalanced biblical theologies then proclaim a bad or imbalanced good news. And such versions of the good news are ultimately bad news. And they build bad or imbalanced churches. So let me go back to these texts and answer how we might address them. Very briefly. <laughs> each of them is worthy of a sermon. Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. How should you read that? Well, we should read it knowing that it was a promise given explicitly to the people of Israel, not explicitly to us. Yes, he was establishing an unbreakable link between righteousness and blessing. You must be righteous to be blessed. But at this point in re redemptive history, when this was being said by Moses in Deuteronomy on the cusp of the promised land, that point in redemptive history, God was teaching the people about their inability to be righteous by their own strength. We're learning a bit of this in Romans right now, correct? So continue reading the story and you're going to find out that God would have to give his people his own righteousness in order for them to be blessed. Or what about Jesus' promises in Matthew about asking for anything in his name, especially if we ask with faith? Then he'll answer. Well, if you read Matthew 18 in context, you see it's actually about the issue of church discipline. We, we take that verse wherever two or three... So many, we learned this last semester actually. This is one of our case studies last semester in how to study the Bible. We take that verse and we start so many prayer, prayer groups with it, right? We gather in prayer circuit and we tell ourselves who, you know, where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is among them and he's going to answer. But what it's actually in context of is 
when there's an issue between you and your brother and you go and you're confronting that brother in sin where there are now two or three because it required to convict someone of something two or three witnesses in the first century have two or three witnesses so there can be verified truth about what's going on in the situation that you're confronting and now where those two or three are in are gathered in my name to confront that person about their sin to restore them to health there I will be, and I'll give you what you're asking for, namely my help to resolve that situation. You can't rip things out of context. It is about Jesus promising the gathered church something. And as we learned this last week too, I think actually applies here. I, I think in context in, in Jesus' teaching on prayer, it's not so much the strength of our faith, but the object of it. This believing is about I believe in Jesus. It's, it's so often when I've gathered with elders and I've, right, like you think about James, um, the book of James, and he, and he says, if any among you is sick, you should, you should go to the elders and they'll gather and they will pray a prayer of faith over you so that you may be healed. Well, so what happens if the elders gather together and they pray a prayer of faith and, you know, anoint with oil, James says, anoint them with oil. And that person goes away and, they, and they're not healed. Was that not a prayer of faith? Well, no, it is a prayer of faith because a prayer of faith is, I believe in the power of God and the possibility of him to do whatever he would want to do. He has the power to heal this person. My faith is, I believe God, you could do this, but I don't know if you will. Because there is, there is a revealed will of God and there is what we call a secret will of God. There's a, there's a decretive will of God. There's things that he says that are explicit in the scriptures. We know what he wants for us. I, I don't have to wonder, God, should I look at porn tonight or not? I he's clear, you know, if it's your will, he's clear about that. That's, that's not an issue. But when this person is coming to me, I don't know what God is doing in this sickness in this person's life. I know it's not the way it's supposed to be. So I can pray, God, this sickness, they have cancer because of sin. Cancer is the result of sin. God, would you heal them? I know you hate sin, and I know you hate cancer, and I know it's not the way it's supposed to be. But right, he's the author. He wrote the story, and he's the director. He's got the script, not me. And I'm asking him to do things, and, and he may do that. And then if that healing happens, it's like, oh, then I can say, well, it was his will, right? Because he did it. So that's it's not the quality of your faith, but the object of it. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? Doesn't mean he's not God, but was the first creation of God. No, it means that Jesus came as a new added. See, if we know the whole story, what we know, here's how we can take a biblical theology and observation, interpretation, and application to make sense of Colossians 1.15. First thing I need to know is, what does firstborn mean to Paul? What does it mean in that ancient Near Eastern context? A lot of what it means to be the firstborn is to be the first in priority and rule and rank. The most important of the family. So Paul isn't speaking in specifically the nature merely of born first, 
but that Jesus is superior among all of those who have been born. He is superior in all of creation. He is the new Adam to redeem a fallen human race. And in that phrase, we find the story of Adam's failure and Abraham's failure and Israel's failure and David's failure and finally our failure in the hope that God himself has come to recreate humanity in his own image. If I know the whole story of the Bible when answering the question of, is Jesus created? There's no better person to look to than Jesus himself. Jesus who continually assumed for himself divine prerogatives in, his, in the story of his life. Continually exercised rights that he would never be, that would never be appropriate for a created human being. He said that he was Lord, Master, Yahweh of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28. And since the Sabbath was instituted by God, his claim to be Lord was an assertion of his deity. He spoke of his unique, intimate knowledge of the Father, Matthew 11.27. Of the glory he shared with the Father before the world began, John 17.5. He accepted the worship of others, Matthew 14. Described a future time when he will sit in judgment over all nations, Matthew 25. Luke tells us that Jesus went so far as to personally forgive a woman's sins. Something only God can do in Luke 7.48-50. And John tells us the story of how the divine Jesus took on flesh and became fully man while also being fully God, John 1, and takes us through his entire story of Jesus with seven great I am statements pointing back to the story in the Pentateuch where Yahweh said, when you go to my people, tell them who sent you. When they ask Moses, who, do, who is he supposed to say sent? I am, tell them I am that I am. This name of God that was literally a verb, is a verb that, that displays his self-existence and that he always was and always will be. And the only way I know how to make sense then that he's not created is to know that whole story. And now I have the answer for the Jehovah's Witness guy at my front door. Because I've observed I've interpreted, I've seen those things in context of the whole story, and now I apply them to my life in the reality. I was walking on my prayer walk this morning. I was thinking about this class. I don't know if this ever happens to you. Sometimes I ask myself the question, what's the point? Is this all, is it all really real? Like, is this worth staking my life on? Is it worth spending these hours on to study? Is, is, is it really important? And then I remind myself that there was a man who was born of a virgin, walked this earth, did amazing miracles, displayed power like the world has never seen. He died just as he said he would. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the dead just like he said he would. There were over 500 witnesses that Paul appealed to when trying to prove the veracity of who Jesus was. And he said, and they're still here to this day. In other words, don't take it from me. You can go ask the witnesses. Yeah, I saw him too. He appeared to me on a road to Damascus. But there are 500 people who can talk to you about this man. And so then the answer to the question is, absolutely this is worth it. This is worth my time. This is worth believing. Because that man said it was true. 
And everything that he said he was going to do, he did. And so I can believe what he says. And so I can bank my life on it. This is worthwhile. Doubts will come. You'll have them. You probably already have. And you will till the day you die. Some of us, more doubts than others. Depending on how you're wired. But this truth, boy, just go home and read Colossians 1 tonight. He, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus. Biblical theology is the guard of the church. It safeguards Christians against the most egregious errors and reductionisms, reducing things down to really non-powerful realities. So we'll stop there. I've got more. Biblical theology is the guide to the church. So we'll, we'll get through that next week, and then we'll start defining some tools. Um, thank you for being so attentive. Nobody fell asleep tonight. That's awesome. I count that a win. Any, any, question, any questions? Before we go. And, and I'll, yes, Brian. So does, just make sure everybody heard Brian's question, does systematic theology help with the interpretation of that text? Could it help with that? (laughs) Right. Right. Like, Brian, it's almost like you're a plant for me. So um, here's, here's three books that I have on my shelf. And these are examples of different kinds of theology. So this is a biblical theology. Um, so it's called the Biblical Theology of Spiritual Adultery, God's Unfaithful Wife. So it's taking one of those themes. And it's, it's amazing. I have, I think I told you briefly at the very end last week, some of you may not have heard it. I've got, I don't know, I think there's like 30 books in this series so far. So that's at least how many themes that you can follow from beginning to the end of the scriptures. So that's, that's the, an example of like a biblical theological work. And then what Brian is talking about is then there's this systematic theology. So this is one by John Frame called An Introduction to Christian Belief. And, and they're all, you know, like could kill you if they were thrown at you, right? Um, and when you go into the beginning of a book like a systematic theology like this, what's great is... Um, you can go into the beginning. So really what Brian's talking about is like the doctrine of God. And I can see, all right, I can go and start reading about God's attributes, his love and goodness, his righteousness and holiness. So if I wanted to know something about the love of God, I can turn to page 231 and then John Frame is going to take me through every single scripture in the entirety of the scriptures that talks about the love of God. And I can see a systemized study of that topic. So the same with, you know, most systematic theologies have a Christology. 
So a, a study of Christ and who Jesus is. And so I could go in there and you'd be able to see what does it mean that he's firstborn of all creation? What, what are the different offices of Jesus? And depending on the systematic theology, there's some differences, um, but there's a lot of commonalities. And then there's, there's even a book like historical theology. So if you just want to know the different theologies, so historical theology will take one theological concept, say sanctification, and it will take you through history, like our history, so like the church fathers and, you know, say 19th, 20th, 21st century, and how has our understanding of sanctification developed historically throughout the history of the church? So that's, that's a really interesting because there's, no, there's nothing new under the sun, says the writer to the, uh, of Ecclesiastes, right? And so there, there really aren't any new issues, new errors, new situations that we're going to discover at Grace Church that haven't been experienced by the church throughout the centuries, which is why there's classes and seminaries on church history and there's, there's uh, um, degree programs on church history, right? Because it's important to know how did the church respond in truth to errors that, were confr- that confronted the church. So yeah, so that's, that's the three different kind of tools that you can have that really help you in your theological and biblical study. So historical, systematic, biblical theology. But that's a good question, Brian. Um, any other questions? All right, again, please know that this isn't the only time you can ask a question. If one comes to mind, my email is in the document. Um, would love to continue to have any feedback because uh, I just want this class to be really helpful to you. So if you've got any feedback, I got some feedback last week. Um, talk slower. So I tried to do that tonight. Hopefully I was a little bit more <laughs> successful. Well, I, there's, I can't make any promises when I get excited. <laughs> it's like all bets are off. I'm like that squirrel in Hoodwinked, you know, on the, that gets a couple of shots of espresso. Yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I say this at risk that you'll never want to show up. Um, we, we went back and forth on this, um, but I, I am, you see there's a, a little microphone right here. Um, so I am recording these sessions because uh, last semester we had a lot of people who were asking about, you know, I can't be there on Wednesday night, can you have the sessions, and we weren't able to get that figured out. And so what I don't have figured out yet is we're going to... Um, we're going to have a website, a web page on our website uh, that will be for course seminars. And we're going to have the audio there and all the handouts. So if you're traveling, you miss a week, um, it'll be there. Uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to change the, so we have a podcast. I don't know if you all knew that. Grace Church has a podcast called Grace Church Sunday Messages. So that's on uh, Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. And any player, I use a, a, a podcast player called Downcast. If you just put in Grace Church Sunday messages into any podcast player, it'll come up. We're the first one that comes up. We're just going to call, we're going to change that to Grace Church, um, probably teaching, something like that. And so then we will um, publish these lectures there as well and and any teaching that we're doing. um, And not just by me, but as as other teaching happens in the church that we can make available for for all of you to listen to. So that's coming. Give us a couple, it's probably going to take a couple more weeks it's a full season right now, and so it just takes a little bit of time to figure that out when we don't have huge staff and people are busy. So um, that is coming. Uh, once that gets launched, please still come to class. I, I like looking at you and seeing you and teaching with you. So um, 
Yeah, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your presence among us. Uh, thanks for these folks who want to learn. And um, Father, if there's anything that I've said that's not helpful or true, uh, would that be quickly forgotten? And where things have been helpful and they're, they're of you, Father, and of your spirit, cause those things to sink down deeply in us and transform us and change us from one degree of glory into the next. We, we want to look more like Jesus and we want to be closer to Jesus. And so use this time to do that. We pray it in his name, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.